Hi, I'm Lenise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, I was so pleased to speak to Professor Joyce Harper. Joyce is the Professor of Reproductive Science at University College London in the Institute of Women's Health, where she is also head of the Reproductive Science and Society Group and Director of Education. She has just written a book called Your Fertile Years, which will be released in April 2021. Joyce and I had a great conversation about breaking taboos around what we call our genitalia, sex education, fertility education, the importance of body literacy, and not over-relying on menstrual cycle apps. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> um, so the first question I always ask my guests is, tell me the story of your very first period. I think this is such an interesting question and really important for all of us to revisit. So I was actually very young and... Uh, what happened to me was that I was nine years old. And in my school, um, when you were in the top year, which was year six, there was uh, special toilets that you could go to. Um, and you had sanitary protection there and you had the bins for disposal, etc. But I was in the year below when I started my periods. So the teachers had to take me aside and give me special permission to use the top years toilets so I started to feel very odd that I was like this freaky girl that I was now having to go to the special toilets because I'd gone through puberty and I had my periods so I really had a feeling of being different and really you know a bit abnormal and and not doing what the other girls were doing and so for me as well I'm sure I'm not the only one who then became very aware when I had my period at school uh, about leakage. I definitely had a couple of times of leakage, worried about smell, et cetera. And again, being the only one who was doing that in that class, you know, no one had seen it before. So I did find it very traumatic being so young. And in a way I was envious of those friends of mine who started much later. So I don't know whether that's part of the reason I really wanted to educate women more and teach more about women's health. Um, and it's something that I discuss a lot um, in the book I've just finished writing about women's health and the fertile years. Um, I've written quite a lot about periods and how we deal with them. And one thing I'd love to do is to do some more work in how women globally deal with having their their period so I think it's a really important topic that we need to discuss so when you got your first period was it at school or was it at home I'm pretty sure I was really trying to remember I'm pretty sure I was at home Um, I have three older sisters and I I seem to remember I asked one of them recently she can't remember but I seem to remember you know going to them and we also live with my grandmother and she was great and really open so I definitely remember talking to her But I think it's such a hard thing for any young girl, especially at nine, 
to hear that every month you're going to bleed from your vagina. And I'm sure you're aware that most people don't even use the word vagina, which is another mission I'm on, that we use the word (laughs) vagina, okay, and vulva. They're fine. They're not swear words. They're not, you know, any other brilliant words that we should embrace as women uh, to use these words. So, yeah, being being told that that's going to happen. I've got three boys who uh, we're all very open. We discuss things, but I've never had the experience to have to tell a girl before she starts her periods that she's going to bleed every month. But I I know friends that have, and it's a hard conversation. It's really tough to have. When you got your first period, you were at home and you had had, you have three older sisters. And so did they, did you learn kind of by osmosis, what was about to happen to you or did, did anyone have that conversation with you, whether it was your sisters or your grandmother? It was definitely osmosis. So I absolutely remember them sitting down around about that age to tell me about sex education. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table. Uh, my brother was there as well. I remember us having this conversation. I do not remember a conversation about periods. So it was definitely something that, that evolved um and i really remember not being totally mentally prepared for what was going to happen and feeling really um concerned every month and stressed when it happened um as i said i i definitely remember a couple of times leaking in the classroom and absolutely being mortified um about this and i can remember thinking i, I often used to watch a lot I still watch a lot of dance and I always used to think what do the women dancers do when they've got their period how how do they you know they're being lifted in the air or whatever you know what how do how do other women deal with this and so I think it's really important to have these conversations and to help young girls feel reassured about what they're going through and that they're not alone probably every other teenage girl at some point well I wasn't even a teenager but um girls will go through this the majority of girls will go through this and they're not alone and everything that they're worrying about uh, other other people are worrying about so I, I just want these conversations out there and for us to normalize these things and not make it taboo just talk about it yeah it's a normal bodily function we should be talking about it so you're really comfortable talking about these things now how long did it take from the time that you from when you got your first period to the time when you actually felt really comfortable with what was happening to you every cycle? Well, I am a very open person and I can absolutely remember having many conversations with friends at school about this. So I sort of became the person that they came to to ask. (laughs) Um, And even with sex education as well, I can remember telling my friends so many things about sex education not that I had sex or anything but you know just my family were all quite open and we had talked about it so it's always been a mission of mine and I feel really strongly that these conversations should start in the home and we should be teaching our kids about our bodies sex education fertility education and parents should feel comfortable with having these discussions but i know it's really hard for people and i've i asked many many friends who are parents about this 
And I would say just roughly about, about half do not want to have that conversation. And they, they, many people say to me, oh, the school will do it. Some schools do do it. They do it to varying um, levels of effectiveness. Um, but I feel very strongly that as a parent, it's really wonderful if your child can feel comfortable talking to you about any of these issues especially as when they have any questions or something goes wrong or they're unsure about anything, they feel comfortable coming to talk to you. And I've been really lucky. My, my boys do ask me a lot <laughs> and I think they go and tell their friends. <laughs> um, and um, I think this is really good, but I understand that a lot of adults don't have the language. Um, so, you know, even, even saying vulva and vagina in, in my book chapter one is all about the anatomy and um someone that read it recently said oh my goodness I really didn't know the definition of what a vagina was and uh she said I feel so embarrassed (laughs) um she's not alone she's really not alone for people who are listening thinking "Mm, I'm one what what are the definitions can you tell them what the definitions are very good question. So the vagina is just the, the opening and the tube that, that's internal. And what we're normally talking about is actually the vulva. So the vulva is a term that includes the clitoris and the, the lips of, of our genitals. Um, and so, you know, we, we normally call the whole thing a vagina. And I just wonder whether to make life easier, that's what we should rebrand it. But officially, um, for our medical textbooks and our biology, the vagina is just the, the opening and, and the tube and the vulva is, is everything. Why do you think people are so uncomfortable having these conversations? And, you know, why do you think that so many parents, you said, want to kind of abdicate the responsibility of, of this to the school, of having these conversations? I, I just think it's historic. I think we're, we've, we've been in a culture where sex is taboo, pregnancy is taboo. You know, no, very few people tell anyone if they're pregnant in the first 12 weeks. They just don't tell people because they worry, oh, something goes wrong. If something goes wrong, your friends and family should help you. Mm. So, as I said, I, I know not everyone is as open as I am, but I really want to try and change that. I, I think we're a lot better now we've got a lot of programs on tv and social media and the internet we we do talk about things more but we're we're not there yet we've got a long way to go and because historically we've never talked about these things we as i said people don't have the language they haven't become comfortable with those words so they don't know where to start and what i always tell my friends is that this is a continuous dialogue Talking about sex and periods and everything is not just, it shouldn't be a one-off conversation. As I said, I can remember that one-off conversation with my family, but it should be continuous. So in my view, when we've got toddlers and they, the, the boy, with the boys, we should call it a penis and we should call mm. it testicles. With a girl, we should call it vagina and vulva. And when they say, ask questions, you know, what, what is, what's my penis for? You know, it's, it's to make babies. Um, I was in a 
brilliant event um, last year at the Eve Appeal. And the Eve Appeal have been doing a lot of work of using the correct language because they've, they, they deal with uh, female cancers. And they said if women can't even identify what's normal in their anatomy, then when things become abnormal, they, they're not aware of it. Um, and it was really interesting. There was a woman on the panel who has been very much involved with sex education but she said when she goes into a nursery they have she has been asked to she doesn't call it a vagina and a vulva <laughs> Every, everyone went <gasps> we're like oh my goodness even this important woman is not using the right terms at a young age and i i i think that's crazy and she said that some of the parents will be offended and I think we need to get over that. We mm. need to not worry. It's not an offensive word. Yeah. Uh, vagina or, or vulva, either of them. So I think um, we need to get it out there. We need to normalise it. And there's many of us on campaigns to try and uh, get this. I, I wrote a post last week that the image just said vagina. <laughs> One of my <laughs> friends said, you know, I get these Instagram posts of all these lovely pictures of scenery or food or something and yours comes it just says vagina (laughs) I I think we've got to normalize it so Mm. we should stand at the top of a high point and shout out vagina and period and menstruation and absolutely normalize it but it should be a dialogue so we shouldn't have young girls thinking when did I have that conversation it should just be that it's evolved through their upbringing at an age appropriate I don't think we should be teaching five-year-olds about sexual intercourse Mm. by any means but as children age we can teach them age appropriate things for them so puberty absolutely before they go through it um things like wet dreams for boys you know these need to be before they have a wet dream which can happen a few years before puberty and then uh, then when they reach teenagers then about sexual intercourse consent um all you know good relations healthy relationships all those things so i think that's how we should do it so for parents who feel slightly uncomfortable having these conversations what you're saying is start slowly start with the age appropriate conversations and the age appropriate language and build your own comfort around this topic as your child gets older so that they're not when they're teenagers you don't have to sit down for the big birds (laughs) birds and the bees talk (laughs) absolutely absolutely we're making it hard for ourselves if we're doing that and then you think when should I do that but if it's been a gradual I had one case recently that um I think that the children were in year six and they'd learned about pregnancy and delivering a baby. And the girl came home and said to her mum, so I, they told me at school that the baby comes out of my vagina. And the mother <laughs> turned around and said, no, 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 they come out of your belly button. I mean, why would you teach an 11 year old child the incorrect information? And my view had always been if they're old enough to ask the question, they're old enough to hear the answer. But how much you tell them is, you know, I, I've been asked by uh, teenagers before um, about male-male uh, sex or female-female sex. So you don't need to tell them every single thing, you know, at that conversation. But you need, I think, to give them enough for them to be aware of the answer. I, I completely agree. I think with, especially with younger kids, 
they'll let you know when you've given them enough information. Like they'll either walk away or they'll just move on to another topic. <laughs> my my eldest son, I've got one 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 fourteen fourteen year old, very curious, and uh, my eldest son who's seventeen keeps saying. Don't ask her the question. If you ask her the question, you might not want to hear the answer. <laughs> but we always laugh and I always answer. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite funny. <laughs> I think it's actually another reason why it's so important is because you don't want them, especially as they get into their early teens and perhaps even younger these days, is them getting this information from pornography and learning, you know, well, this is what this is what sex is supposed to be like, or this is what uh, our bodies are supposed to look like. You know, you want to kind of preempt all of that because in this day and age, it's, it would be naive to think that your child isn't going to be exposed to porn at some point. But I really believe that it's important for them to know that that is not a true depiction of sex. Absolutely. As I've mentioned, I've written a book about the fertile years. I've got a chapter on sex and quite a large section on pornography. And I absolutely remind my sons, I I know they're watching pornography. You know, the majority of of children, of teenagers are, unfortunately. You know, when I was young, you couldn't have access to this material. Um, They they used to be magazines that are on the top shelf of a, a shop or Porn videos were so you know something that were hard to buy. A child couldn't buy that. But we have to realise that all of us have access to pornography at the touch of our computer. And if you put any word into the computer and then click on images, any sexual word, click on images, you will get bombarded with graphic images, pornographic images. So it's it's one click away, literally. And parents have got to understand that. And then they try to use filters and things like that. But kids get around all of that. So what I believe is that we need to talk to our children about pornography, remind them that this is not real life and this is not how we have a healthy sex life. There's often violence, uh, especially against women. Um, the, the women, that the act they do is not what most of us would too. Uh, there's no just very, well, I don't think there's any, dis- I don't know, I haven't watched any, but I don't think there's any discussions about consent. Um, and the women, unfortunately, are often, you know, very um, either surgically enhanced or, you know, filter and photoshopped enhanced. So this is a real problem for young girls because they'll see these women in, in these videos and they're, they've got very trimmed labia, they've got no pubic hair, their breasts are a certain way. And the girls might look at themselves and think, well, I don't look like that. I don't look like that. So there's something wrong with me. And that's a huge problem. So um, I'm always reassuring people, and, and this is in my book as well, that this is not normal on any level Mm. it's it's a fantasy um and that's not how a woman should look um and that's not how we should behave in a normal sex life so it does worry me that um how much a child a teenager's brain could get altered by watching these images so i think porn is a is a real problem real problem Mm. and then the young girls that go into the porn industry thinking they're going to be this glamorous actress and the and the way that the guys treat them 
I've seen some terrible documentaries about um, how the teenage girls are are treated and then discarded. Mm. And so it's it's a it's a terrible thing. And the whole trafficking thing, you know, it's I, it just seems every day you hear about some some other women being found or whatever. And it, so I I do what really worries me is I do think this is getting worse. Um, so I, I think we've we've got to try and really reduce the negative impact of this on our future children, you know, our children. And I, I don't know how we do that. It's such a terrible situation we've got to. I think the I think the heart of it is being having comfort in yourself to be able to have these conversations and. It's a, like, I think about the movie, I don't know if you've seen it, Meet the Fockers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, for those of you listening who haven't seen it, Barbara Streisand, she plays this sex therapist. And she's always talks about how she had been having these conversations about sex with her son from a young age. So she's very open, very free. And also the show Sex Education, where Jilly Anderson plays the sex therapist. And it's a similar sort of thing. Unfortunately, they play both males on the show as being a bit neurotic because of this. But I think in real life, the child has the benefit of these conversations and knowing that, you know, they can be open and go to their parent with anything. I've watched both of those with my kids and um, especially the sex education with Gillian Anderson. I think it's fantastic. I learned something on it. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Um, Like the way in sex education that they dealt with certain really important topics that probably children wouldn't learn about at school. One of the great storylines was the girl that had vaginismus, uh, which is a, a problem where the vagina is really tight so she was trying to have sex and she couldn't have sex. And they actually went through even the treatments where they use little dilators to try and uh, open up the vagina. And I just thought that was that was great. They did it in a really good and sympathetic way. It was brilliant. You know, when you watch something, you think, oh, that's just so good. You know, there are going to be young girls that are affected by that. And um, I think the same sex relationship stories they have were, were really good. Um, so yeah, sex education has been a big thumbs up for me. And, um, I think series three is coming out soon. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm Um, looking forward to that. Yeah. I really encourage, uh, people to let their teenagers watch that and watch it with them. And, and I hope people feel confident enough to watch it with them and, you know, laugh about bits and talk about, you know, open discussions. That's one good really way of doing it. Yeah. So going back to the work that you do and your your period journey. So you you were really comfortable as a teenager and you had the conversations with your friends at school. And then how when you think about your relationship with your period, you said at the beginning it was very uncomfortable. What, how would you describe your period, your relationship with your period and menstrual health now? Okay, so I'm postmenopausal now. And I would absolutely say that for me, not so much the period, but the whole menstrual cycle um, was something, especially with hindsight, looking back, was something that was a huge influence on my life, on my daily life. So 
for me, I know not all women are affected by the fluctuation in their hormones, but for me, I was. And even when I was on the pill, um, you know, when, when it came to you know, the few days before my period and having premenstrual syndrome, uh, I definitely had that. And I was on the pill for quite a long time, way over 10 years. And I don't know whether the pill had made it worse. Sometimes it makes it better. Um, but I, I really feel now I'm postmenopausal. I think one of the wonderful things of the menopause is that your menstrual cycles stop, your periods stop. And I feel now much more sane. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard a, a postmenopausal woman say this, but so I think for women, when they're free from their menstrual cycles, free from worrying about fluctuations in hormones, free from worrying about contraception, and at this stage, for me, it was an absolute new lease of life. Um, and I, I felt absolutely fantastic since my menstrual cycle has stopped. And I, I agree that most people going through the perimenopause, there'll be some little... Uh, you know, some symptoms and things that they'd have to deal with. And so for some, it can be really severe and they might need some treatment. Um, but for the majority of women I see postmenopause, actually not having your period. I mean, having a period is, is tough. You know, it can happen when you're out, when you're not prepared. Um, how many times have all of us had a woman come up to us and say, have you got a spare tampon? Have you got, you know, <laughs> um, and I love the menstrual cup and I love the, the menstrual pants I think those are great uh, inventions now that women can help deal with with the periods. But for me, that fluctuation of the hormones as well um, was was really tough. So actually, when I became postmenopausal, I contacted my boyfriend who I lived with for ten years in my twenties and early thirties, and I said to him, "I'm really sorry. <laughs> I think I was a bit nuts." And when I was, you know, with you and on the pill and my menstrual cycle, and now I feel so sane. So looking back, um, I mean, obviously having a period and a menstrual cycle is something we have to embrace as women. And I know some women who, who love having their period. They feel it's a sort of reset of their body. Um, but we're all different. And I know that the contraception people, hormonal contraception that is offered now, a lot of people are um, able to just keep taking the hormones or the implant or um, the injection. You won't have periods. Mm. So there are options of what women want to do. If you, if you love having your period, you can certainly have your period. But if you're having problems and some women do have a lot of problems with their menstrual cycle and their periods, there are more options now of, well, trying to get over that. But I, I, I've recently reviewed a book that's coming out. I think it should be out soon about periods. And um, the, the woman who wrote it said that she tried everything. She had a lot of problems with her periods and she tried everything and nothing really worked for her. So we have to appreciate that there's a whole um, uh, different views that women can have about their periods and we are all individual and we are all different um so some some might have long cycles short cycles so we we did a study last year i did a study last year with um, one of the fertility and contraception apps called natural cycles and we looked i wanted to look at their menstrual cycle data 
And we looked at over 600,000 menstrual cycles. And I wanted to see how long they were, how long the bleed was, and when the women were ovulating. And, and actually, I think it was 13% of women in our study had a 28-day cycle. The majority didn't. And I think a lot of women don't realize that between 21 and 35 days, uh, menstrual cycle is classified as normal. Mm. So we, we get taught at school, you know, 28-day cycle, ovulation on day 14. And that's not, that's a sort of textbook. And that's not what the majority of women would experience. So I want women to be aware that there's a huge diversity in how our menstrual cycle will be between any two women. And also something very important. I, I think the invention of menstrual cycle apps is great because women can get some idea about when their next period will be and help plan a bit and knowing if they're feeling a bit um, stressed that it might be premenstrual syndrome. But I, I've got two important messages for women that use them. They shouldn't get stressed if their period doesn't arrive on the day the app says it's going to do. Yeah. Because uh, we, we do, we're publishing a big study soon. We're just writing up the data. We, we used 10 apps and we had five fictitious women that had sort of very common types of menstrual cycles. And we put all the data in apps and we've been analysing them. And um, some of the apps definitely didn't get things right. Um, it's they're using algorithms and, you know, we're human. It, we, we never act like we should be doing. So women shouldn't worry if the, it says you're going to have your period on Thursday and it doesn't come. It, it's yeah. nothing wrong. It's just the, you know, a, a limitation of technology. But the second thing is that almost all of these menstrual cycle apps will tell a woman the day she's ovulating. And this is totally incorrect. You can't just look at your menstrual cycle dates and predict the day you're ovulating. You have to measure something. There's a few things you can measure. Um, there's some hormones you can measure on a urine stick, or there's other ways looking at temperature and things like that. And these will help you know when you're ovulating. You can't just look at your dates because every woman can ovulate at different times. In our study, looking at 600,000 cycles, there were some women that ovulated on day 10 and some of women that ovulated on day 26. So, and the average was actually day 17. So you can't just predict that looking at dates. So I'm really trying, I keep posting about this, trying to get these menstrual cycle apps to not even give you that information. Because I think some women will think, oh, I'm, I've ovulated, I can have unprotected sex. Mm. And then some women are using them as a fertility app and they're going to miss the day. So there are fertility apps that do measure things. They're great. And menstrual cycle apps are great, but they shouldn't tell women when they ovulate and women shouldn't worry about having a period on a different day. I think the the use of apps is really interesting, but what I think is really important is combining that with body literacy. So knowing when you ovulate, like not just relying on your app, as you say, but knowing the signs of ovulation. So what what's happening with your cervical fluid? What's happening with you energetically? And then, you know, delving deeper into your period, what's happening there? Don't just look, oh, well, my app tells me I'm going to have my period. But what's happening to your body? You know, are you feeling a sense of winding down? What's happening to you? Uh, what are the other physical signs that you can connect with? Because we, it's another, I feel like it's another example of how we're just kind of offloading 
our our responsibility onto a piece of technology when we actually get a lot of benefit from knowing more about our bodies. Um, I want to ask what you said. You said that uh, you talked about twenty eight day cycles, and in that study, only thirteen percent of women had thirty twenty eight day cycles. Where you said a textbook definition, but where does this this idea of twenty eight day cycles come from? It's one of those historic things that gets put into a book. There would have been a study. Um, I have looked at some of the old studies, but there were a lot of the early studies on the menstrual cycle. Someone along the way had decided to pick women of twenty eight days. It sort of, you know, twenty eight days. It, it it's people like rounding things up, and it's you know we've got the lunar. 28 days as well. And we've got, you know, 28 days fits nicely into four weeks. So some of the very early studies, people, the scientists doing them had decided to pick um, women with 28 day cycles of normal body weight to do their studies on. (laughs) So if you, if you pick those sorts of women, most of them might ovulate around day 14, 15 for sure, but they were often, Um, small studies and as I said they've picked a very narrow range of people so those early studies didn't appreciate that women are so individual and diverse and that we all do different things so now once these things get put in books and then taught and it sort of escalates and trying to undo that is one of my missions but it's really tough so um, yeah it's historic early studies that were done and they obviously had to pick one group of women to do them on because they didn't want too many variables. So in, in my book, I have, I'm covering all of this and I'm trying to get women to understand the science behind their bodies. But as, as you just said, I totally agree that I think women should learn about their bodies, learn about what happens when they're ovulating their cervical mucus. I think the two most important things of our menstrual cycle are our periods and ovulation and they're not hard to understand so I want women to understand how their bodies work and the reason I've I've just written this book and the reason why I've spent the majority of the last 30 odd years working in this field because when I was younger when I was at university I realized that so many of my friends didn't understand how their body worked they didn't understand what was really happening in a period. They certainly didn't understand ovulation. They didn't understand how contraceptions were working um, or about sexually transmitted infections. So I've always wanted to um, write a book. I did start writing a book in 1987. Um, I wish I was joking, but I didn't. I did start writing a book to explain to women how their bodies work. And I think nowadays more women want to know this, mm. but the information out there is saturated with false information on websites and unclear information. So I've gathered all this together in a book for women to understand their fertile years from puberty to the menopause and to embrace being a woman and to understand how all that works and understand how we can keep healthy because um, lots of information we have now is that if um if we want to get pregnant or we're going through the menopause if we're leading a healthy lifestyle all of this will be a lot easier Mm. but also if something's wrong 
Um, if we're having really heavy periods at a, at a young age, if we're having really irregular periods or very short or very long, um, or if we think we might not be ovulating every month, if women are in tune with their bodies and pick these things up themselves, then they it's not just to do with fertility, it's to do with their own female health. I would encourage them to go and visit a doctor sooner rather than later and say, I'm just a bit concerned about my menstrual cycle because sometimes that could pick up endometriosis. It could pick up polycystic ovarian syndrome. And these could affect our fertility, but more immediate, they actually affect our health and our menstrual health. So I think I don't think women should wait till they're trying to get pregnant and then think, oh, I've realized I've got polycystic ovaries. I think we should look at our our menstrual cycle much earlier. And if we do think something's wrong, but how are you going to know something's wrong if you're not educated about it properly? And if at school you're told 28 day cycle, ovulation day 14. So this is what I've written a book for. I've written a book to tell women everything I can about optimizing their health, their menstrual health, their pre-pregnancy health, everything. You said something that I wholeheartedly believe in. So how are you supposed to know something is wrong if you're not taught what is normal and what isn't? And I see that all the time. We we have these cultural messages that ha- having period pain is normal, feeling like emotionally all over the place before your period is normal. I saw someone posting on Instagram a couple of months ago talking about how bloating is normal. And I just, you know, all of these messages that we receive and where we then internalize and think, well, that's normal. So I just have to live with that. So I love the fact that you put it coming out with a book of all of this. So tell us more about the book when it's coming out, if it's out, if it's not out already uh, and where we can get our hands on it. Thank you so much. So as I said, I started writing this in 1987. There was was one book I'd come across called Our Body, Ourselves, which was an American book, which was great. But I thought there's some things in there that they haven't quite covered. And I would like to to write that. But I was very young and uh, time goes very quickly. (laughs) Uh, So um, around about seven, eight years ago, um, I've been working in the fertility field the whole of this time. I, I started my career as a clinical embryologist working in the, the lab in a fertility clinic, um, helping people get pregnant. And then I've been doing um, research to do with fertility since then. And I, I'm director of education at the Institute for Women's Health at University College London. So I'm absolutely passionate about educating our, our future professionals, but also women. So um, about six, seven years ago, I set up a website called Global Women Connected, and wanted to have a place to start discussing these. Um, and so I, we still, I still post a lot on there. And it's been really good to help me think about what women want to know. Um, but a few years ago, I thought, I think I need to write that book. I, I really do. Um, so I wrote it a couple of years ago, and I actually covered it from birth to death. It was a whole women's life course. Um, had some trouble trying to get it published. Um, and basically now it's going to be published with Hodder. Today is actually an important day. Today's the day I send the final manuscript to my publisher. Wow. <laughs> good omen. Um, so I'm just finishing reading the last bits through now uh, again. 
Um, so Hodder will be publishing this book um, in early next year. And I'm absolutely on a mission to um, go to book clubs, go to women's groups, lecture to women uh, and men and men. It takes, you know, fertile years affects men as well. It takes two to make a baby. Um, and so I, I really now want to spend the next years of my career doing more events, getting all of these things out on the table. So the, the book starts with your anatomy and uh, a bit about puberty. Um, I talk about female fertility decline. So unfortunately for women, um, our, the quantity and the quality of our eggs starts to go down. And that's a, that's a whole other podcast. But um, from the age of about 35, even though we may feel wonderful, our fertility definitely is decreasing. And uh, again, women are getting false information about this. We're seeing celebrities have children at 50, mm. but it's it's not real. It's really not real. So um, there's a lot about female fertility decline, but I've got chapters on contraception, about sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy. I've even covered the menopause. I've talked about egg freezing. Some women feel that maybe egg freezing might be the answer to put uh, their fertility on hold you know, so they can delay being a, a mother. Um, so I've talked about the advantages and disadvantages. So I'm really looking forward to it coming out and um, I want to get this message out there and help women understand how their bodies work um, and how they can be healthy and really look after themselves. It sounds so exciting. Well, we'll have to get you back on when the book comes out I can't wait to read it um what would you what message would you want to give women about their menstrual health their hormone health their um fertility what uh, any of those areas what message would you want to leave women with so I talk about the the four pillars of well-being to live our life for men and women. So we have nutrition. We, we really have to look after our, our nutrition, you know, healthy five a day, not processed food, etc. I don't, I'm not a fan of any of these wacky diets. They come and they go. <laughs> I've tried them all over my lifetime. So we've got nutrition, just sensible nutrition. Um, there's no pill you can pop a fertility or menstrual cycle vitamin cocktail. That's, that's going to change everything. We should, be healthy. The second is exercise. I'm I'm a huge passionate exerciser. I, I I'm a qualified aerobics teacher. I don't teach anymore, but I used to in my twenties. And I'm I'm an ambassador for This Girl Can, the UK scheme to encourage women and girls to exercise. Then um, we've got sleep. Sleep's really important for our, our well-being. And unfortunately, some people now sit in bed with their phones and their gadgets on social media and blah. blah, blah. So we've got to make sure we get enough sleep and finally it's our our mental health and we've got to look after our mental health so we've got to keep stress anxiety depression um in in a really good place and look after that so i would say to any woman if you if you're looking after your well-being um you should you should really help your menstrual cycle you should hopefully reduce your uh, pms if you're experiencing it and then when you want to have children, if you want to have children, you'll be prepared. This is all the preparation that you need um, is to be living a healthy life. 
Um, and then again, if you're if you're pregnant, the same things apply. And then preparing for the menopause, again, I would say the same things. You know, I, I think unfortunately, a lot of women drink too much alcohol, and then they say, "Oh, I'm feeling." depressed and I can't sleep and you know well how much alcohol are you drinking oh you know every day and half a bottle and you know so all of these things if you're smoking cigarettes if you're eating poor food all of these things will affect our general health but especially our menstrual health fertility pregnancy and menopause so that would be my biggest message just get in that routine as soon as you can and really look after your your body you know your body's your temple look after it mm. and but but the last thing would be if you're doing everything really great and you're suffering from anything you know heavy periods pms no periods during periods whatever you think there might be something wrong then it's really important don't suffer in silence if you're unsure go and see your doctor and Try not to Google it. <laughs> we, we always do. We always do. Um, but please go and see your doctor and get it checked. Be safe rather than sorry. Just check it. Mm. And it's better to check it sooner rather than later. That's brilliant. So really don't don't guess. Get it checked. I love that. That's so yeah. important. Don't don't be beholden to Dr. Google. Um yeah. <laughs> if if listeners they're listening to what you're saying they really connect with what you're saying how can they find you to find out more about uh what the work you do so i do a lot on social media on uh instagram and twitter i'm at prof joyce harper uh if you google me you'll come to my website as well and then i have a facebook group called global women connected and post various things on there and get discussions going. So, um, and I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Prof Joyce Harper again, you'll find me. So very easy to find. I'm pretty sure if you've just put Joyce Harper in Google, good old Google, it just comes straight up with all my contacts. So always welcome to have conversations and, and hear things and um, just get the message out there. Let's, let's talk about women's health. Let's normalize it. Yes, that's normalized women health, women's health. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been so wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.